This is Tasting Together. Toronto's News, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome to Tasting Together. I'm your host, Andre Pru, and I'm joined by my co-host. Maroki Tong. And Maroki, I've got to, I'm going to start the show off with a question right away. Have you already got Christmas decorations up? Are you thinking about Christmas baking and um, just what you're going to be doing food-wise around the holidays? I mean, we have the whole holiday season coming up and there's just so much festivities from all different cultures happening around this time of year. I don't think we'll have enough time ever to talk about all the things that are coming down the pipeline. That's 100%. Although I know one thing that people will be expecting us to talk about, we'll be we'll be touching on some roundup of, of uh, high-class beverages to bring to your house, whether that's going to be craft beer or some wines as we head into the holidays. I know that uh, we'll be joined later by Danny Longo um, of the 640 Toronto Newsroom. Uh, but let's kick things off this way. Is there a food that you can't live without, Maroki? Mm, that's a loaded question, Andre. Maybe I should just bounce that one off of you. You tell me first. Oh, I think for me it's peaches. Peaches? Yeah. Interesting. Huh. Well, I still don't quite have the answer for you, but I would say that when I grew when I was growing up, when people always asked me what my favorite food was, it was Peking duck. Oh, interesting. I mean, that's a good one to not live without. Like you're you're living the high life eating something like that that you can't live without. I'm taking a look at a press release that I got earlier this week uh, talking about uh, Parmigiano Reggiano. And uh, apparently they did a poll that said that six in 10 Canadians said that cheese is uh, the food that they could not live without. And that uh, that goes on top of things like bread, pasta, pizza and burgers. Peking duck and peaches both aren't mentioned in the survey. <laughs> Well, to be fair, Andre, I don't think I could live without cheese either. I know. And Parme- Parmigiano Reggiano, or I guess we just refer to it as, as Parmesan. It's just one of those like fascinating cheeses that like I always keep it in the fridge, whether it works its way into salads, pastas. Like if we're talking about cheeses in specific, like this is definitely something that I keep an eye out for. Or, you know, when I've been lucky enough to uh, travel to Italy, it's, it's actually kind of cool. This is one of those things where they sell wedges of Parmigiano Reggiano in the airports when you're leaving the country. I've had a chance to pick up a big chunk of cheese in both Rome and Milan on previous trips. Oh, so good. Now, it's so funny that we're talking about Parmesan. I think for the longest time, I thought Parmesan was the little tiny grainy loose cheese that you would get when you go get fast Italian or cheap yeah, Italian. Cheese or, in a tube. You know, yeah, you te- or like, you know, you sprinkle on top or, you know, you had it at home. It, it, I think it was like craft parm cheese craft parm that's what i grew up on my dad makes the most amazing caesar salad i don't think it's until um i was well into my late teens early 20s in university where we convinced dad to switch to like proper you know cheese that comes as a brick and not from a tube but when we got this press release um we were just talking a little bit about regions of origin and what that means for food Mm-hmm. And that's actually super important. I mean, you and I both as wine aficionados, we know that they, you know, pay so much attention about where a wine comes from, right? If you yes. are, you know, in, in France, it's the AOC and it's uh, the DOC, DOC in Italy. D- yeah, DOCG as well, right? Yeah. So those those mean slightly different things. We don't get into the uber nerdiness of them, but um, a lot of these protections 
the the regions that oversee them go through a lot of painstaking care to define what it is to make a food hit those standards and only food production that hits those standards can use those names and um, appellations. I think my favorite example of that is uh, from Wayne's World, actually, where um, Wayne and Benjamin, so Mike Myers and Rob Lowe's character, have this exchange. I don't believe I've ever had French champagne before. Oh, actually, all champagne is French. It's named after the region. Otherwise, it's sparkling white wine. Americans, of course, don't recognize the convention, so it becomes that thing of calling all of their sparkling white champagne, even though by definition they're not. Ah, uh, yes. It's a lot like Star Trek, the next generation. In many ways, it's superior, but will never be as recognized as the original. I know that's a really a really old clip, and I, this is one of those things where it's a joke, right? It's, it's become a meme to say, uh, you know, it's, it's something this, unless it comes from the proper region in France, then it's something else. It's actually good that we're bringing this up now because I actually have people say to me, oh, Champagne's a region in France? Yeah. I didn't yeah. know that. Or, right? I mean, like Ontario makes so many great sparkling wines, but I think it's just for a lot of people, the default setting is I'm going to go buy a bottle of Champagne and they'll walk out with a bottle of Prosecco or a bottle of Cava. Now, I know for a lot of people sitting in the car right now, they're probably rolling their eyes at us and, and thinking that we're being <laughs> super duper nerdy. But it's important to make those distinctions because all these wines taste vastly different and also different. and also knowing that they're made to a certain standard means that for the large part you know that you're getting things of a certain quality so earlier you mentioned doc and docg so docg in italy when it comes to wine is something that's set to a higher standard even than doc uh they're wines that need to be tasted by a panel and they decide which wines um meet that standard to be DOCG. So when you see a wine on the shelf that has a sticker on the neck that says DOCG from Italy, and it's only Italy where you'll see DOCG, it's AOC in France, you know that um it's set to that higher standard. It doesn't guarantee that the wine's gonna be excellent. It just goes into the process for how the wine's made. And if we think about how much we care, you know, in Ontario about shopping local and you know, when we talk about the hundred mile diet and mm -hmm. sourcing locally from our farmers, it's it's that too, right? Because one of the important things about a protected region is that it can't even be listed as a region specific product if an if one of the ingredients in the final product is sourced elsewhere. Yeah, that's a really fascinating point that you bring up, Maroki. This summer, um, I had a chance to visit a mustard factory in France. And I know it was a bigger news story in France than it was in Canada, but there was a mustard shortage in France. And I don't know if a lot of people realize that mustard is a staple in French households, both for cooking, like to make a salad dressing. You can't make a salad dressing without throwing mustard in it, putting mustard on sandwiches. Like it's just, it, it's a critical ingredient. Um, but I managed to visit a mustard factory in, um, in Beaune, in Burgundy, just north of Lyon. And the people there are making a new kind of mustard. And I put that in, in air quotes because Dijon mustard, as we know it in the grocery store. So if you see something that's called Dijon mustard, that's a recipe. You can make Dijon mustard anywhere on the planet. But the people at Fayo are making um, what they're calling moutard de bone, so mustard from bone. And they get the seeds from bone, they get the vinegar from bone, they get as much as they can to make the product in bone. So I asked them, like, are you trying to make this an AOC product? Are you trying to make something that's region controlled? And the, um, the tour guide at the factory was just like, well, we can't source the salt from the region, so we'll never be able to make this an AOC product which I thought was was fascinating. So when you're seeing like when you're seeing these stickers and these appellations on the bottles it actually means something. 
Um, I mean, olive oil, like forget it off of wine altogether, because we don't want to make this all just about wine and booze, but olive oil is another one where it's it's been fascinating to see um, that you can get DOC olive oil and cheeses from from Italy. And all these things have different tastes, but it's also set to a higher standard. So when you when you are spending that extra money on olive oil, it'll let you know where the olive oil was made. Mm-hmm. And I know they actually have protections for that in Greece as well, and they mm. have protections for that in Spain as well. And I, I heard they're getting very, very futuristic uh, with some of these labels. They're implementing like these silicon microchips to mm. verify authenticity and prevent fraud, which I think is actually really important. Obviously, for the consumer, you're not going to be able to <laughs> actually track that that microchip. But I think I it's, mean, if we it's, think about I it, think like it's an important thing out there. If, if we think about it, like a lot of these products are expensive, and they're 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 sort of splurge product products, right? Mm. Like I still keep my regular like Unico and DiCecco uh, olive oils in my house for for cooking with. Like if I need to sear something on the stove, but when I'm making my salad dressings, yeah, I'm using higher quality olive oil. And the amount of money that would be into counterfeiting a ten or fifteen dollar bottle of olive oil, like I mean, the sky would be the limit given what it costs to buy like a regular jug of just grocery store brand name olive oil, right? Well, you know what olive oil and cheese have in common? They're both great garnishes on top of a warm bowl of soup, which is what we're going to be talking about coming right up after the break. I know, don't shoot the messenger, but the season is getting colder. And you know what? What better way to warm our bellies and our souls than a great bowl of soup? So we'll see you very shortly on 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together, Toronto's news, today's talk, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together on 640 Toronto. I'm your host, Andre Pru, and I am joined by my co-host, Maroki Tong. And I don't know about you, Maroki, but when I say the word soup season, does that mean anything to you? I mean, I think we alluded to this when we spoke on Tasting Together in the last couple of weeks because you know the weather's getting colder we're kind of switching to things there's there's foods and drinks that we turn to kind of on a seasonal basis and as the weather gets colder something like soup is like a big warm hug it's like the sweater in our tummies i think you hit the nail on the head with all those things and i know we've talked a little bit about drinking habits about how in winter i tend to uh, find comfort more in bigger red wines and put the white wines away that I usually drink in the summer. Uh, but I think food-wise is also something where our habits really change. I, I just have a hard time, you know, finding comfort in the bottom of a big bowl of like beef and barley soup in the middle of the summer. It's just something where come January or February, I'm craving it, you know? Yeah. Do you drink hot coffee in the summer, Andre? Um, I actually don't. Um, you're not a coffee drinker. I'm not a coffee drinker, but you're but in the summer, but in the summer, I actually I switched to I switched to iced tea, and it, it's one of those things where, um, one of my guilty pleasures is Arizona iced tea. Um, I know we don't often talk about like healthiness in this, and I know last week I said that when it comes to uh, Thanksgiving and the turkey spread, all bets are off. But I don't like to drink a lot of calories, so in the summer, Arizona iced tea is a guilty pleasure because it's not too bad for calories compared to other iced teas on the market but i drink iced tea in the summer (laughs) that's fair and i i love my iced coffee but my partner eric will drink hot coffee in the summer outside so you know when you say you can't necessarily find comfort in barley soup in the summer i wonder if some people do now that goes to the question you know because we think of soup as a seasonal thing as this warm hug um for our bodies so are gazpachos and cold soups not real soups ah yes 
Um, I mean, you and I, I I'm going to let people peer behind the, the curtain. When we were preparing this show, we were talking about how virtually every culture on the planet has a, a, a soup. And I think it's just one of those things where, you know, I, I love the explosion of sort of soup culture in Toronto. When I arrived in Toronto in 2007, obviously we had tons of uh, restaurants that are open right until late at night. Uh, and then ramen restaurants seem to have exploded on the scene and are part of the, the mainstay. But when we were preparing the show, I was talking about how something like a Thai green curry would be a soup. And uh, you you don't agree with me. I know. I don't think curry equals soup. And, um, you know, for me, it's considered a dish. It's something that you serve it with rice. And not to say that you can't throw rice in your soup, but inherently, I believe curry dishes aren't always just served on their own as a, you know, just because it's liquidy doesn't necessarily mean that it's soup. And just so I didn't put my foot in my mouth because I am not Southeast Asian, I decided to do a little bit of a dive um, <laughs> on the hypothesis that curry doesn't equal soup. And I think I'm right because my research showed that in general, calling anything just a curry is actually a term that was developed by foreigners as they experienced the cuisine. Um, so, you know, according to an, uh, an article on Bon Appetit I read, it's actually an, an increasingly reductive tournament and they're trying to use it less. So the focus is actually to say like curry paste, curry powder, curry leaves, curry cubes, because they are all things that, you know, the, the spice can have an impact on a final dish. But the kind of curry dish itself is not soup, but you could make like curried carrot soup and maybe you do like a Thai green curry inspired soup. But curry, quote unquote, curry is not soup. So that's my conclusion. So what you're saying is we might see the names of some of these dishes evolve as people are working to decolonize some of these dishes. Because I know, I know, I know for me, if I'm thinking about it, um, there is a fine line between sort of soups and stews. Um, But, you know, for the most part, soup is, is something that you'll eat with, eat with a spoon, right? Yeah, you do. Um, and there's obviously different kind of spoons. Um, you know, we also have the the soup spoons that we eat, you know, as Chinese people and um, variations of it in Japanese cuisine and Korean cuisine and Vietnamese cuisine. But you know what? Um, you know, if we want to kind of find some differentiations or similarities between soup and soupy foods, I would constitute soup-based noodles, a kind of soupy dish, right? Ramen noodles or pho noodles, something that you would probably need some chopsticks to help you along because yeah. I don't think you can really eat noodles with with a spoon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny how you can explore explore culture through food and just how unifying soup is. I, I actually, it's one of my favorite things. I discovered uh, when I was growing up in Saskatchewan and obviously we didn't have a ton of variety when it comes to, um, you know, cu- cuisine not based on the ethnic makeup of the city. Like Saskatchewan is very Ukrainian, very Eastern European and obviously, we're seeing more and more immigration from other parts of the world there. But um, I was invited out for lunch with uh, with one of my Vietnamese friends whose family runs a restaurant in Regina. And it was uh, what, like I discovered pho when I was uh, in my, my late teens, early 20s, and just I fell in love with, you know, this wonderful hot soup with beef and, and thick noodles. And I was taking my grandmother with me to um, to go to the restaurant. And we just had a fun conversation in the car. And I still remember because it was... Um, it was ignorance more than anything, but I was explaining to her where we were going, what type of food it was, and 
um, my grandma was just like, oh, you mean Chinese food? And I had to actually like break it down to my grandma that Vietnam and China are not the same place. Um, and I remember when I took her that she sat in the corner with me and my friends and we were just talking like people in university usually do. And, um, you know, she finished every last drop in that bowl. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. Now, Andre, did you always pronounce it pho? <laughs> I did because like I said I was I was fortunate enough to be introduced to the dish by a friend of mine who um who runs a Vietnamese restaurant he's he's Vietnamese descent and he's still a very good very good friend of mine but when I moved to Toronto uh a lot of my coworkers would always talk about going for pho and the thing is he had it drilled into me the proper way to say this that it just you know it, it's something that made me made me cringe cuz you know it's it's just I have an obtuse name, like I have a, a last name with a bunch of silent letters that you can't say. And it's something you're sort of just drilled into that as a sign of respect to people that you learn to say their name properly. And I feel that applies to to food as well, if you're able to, right? Absolutely. I think, you know, as someone who's had my name misspelled and mispronounced um, many, many times growing up, and a lot of people when they, you know, immigrate to Canada, they straight up adopt a Western English name simply, you know, to make things easier for a fellow North American. I believe in the respect of someone's culture and where they're from and what their names are. I mean, literally in fantasy novels, they always talk about how names have power. Yeah, right? that's funny. So I believe in that have power and therefore you should show them a sound of respect. Actually, my my pet peeve is when people say sake instead of sake. Yeah, the alcoholic beverage. Well, I mean, that's the it. Wine, the Japanese wine. Can you say that again, please? Sake. There. Now, everybody listening to... Instead of sake. Yeah, so everybody listening to this show now has no excuse to mispronounce that. And it's a sign of respect to the people who are making the delicious beverage. <laughs> well, Andre, speaking of pho places, you have a few favorites around Toronto, don't you? Yeah, and I, I mean, a lot of them are sentimental to me. I, I know there's certain people who will talk about the best places in the city, but um, I have a soft spot for pho 88. Uh, which used to be on Spadina, which is, I think, now a condo, as so many places are. And I still can't believe how Chinatown and Spadina and in Toronto are in the process of gentrifying. But thankfully, uh, I'm sorry to anyone of Vietnamese descent listening to this, because I am going to mispronounce this, but it's Phu Chê Le, P-H-O-X-E-L-U-A. It's a really great uh, restaurant on the second floor of a building in Spadina that I still go out of my way to go to. Um, and many a times earlier in the city would be in these restaurants at two, three. I, I don't know if I've ever been in one of those restaurants past three in the morning, probably. <laughs> and Maroke, I know you have a favorite soup spot in the city uh, living in Midtown Toronto. Um, and we're going to be joined by the proprietor of said institution in a few minutes after the break. Yes, Sarah Schwartzgeller of Soul Provisions will be coming to talk about all things soup from different cultures and how soup can bring a little bit of empathy to everyone in our community. So stick around, and we are 640 Toronto. You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome back, everyone, to Tasting Together on 640 Toronto. I am Maroki Tong, and I'm with my co-host, Andre Pru. Andre, just before the break, we were chatting about all the amazing spots where we can get some soup in Toronto. And I um, am super excited that we're going to be joined by Sarah Schwartz-Geller of Soul Provisions. 
Um, that was one of the soup spots that I mentioned that had captured my heart before we went on break. Sarah has quite the roster um, to her name. Andre, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about it. Yeah, you have a you have a, a pretty like a personal connection to this space as one of your favorite soup spots. But let's take a look here. I'm taking a look at the bio. Sarah is a live entertainment producer with 20 years in the industry, bringing locally produced shows on tour all around the world. And since 2020 has grown a soup and popsicle empire called Soul Provisions. And uh, she is joining us today from the set of her upcoming food reality show, City Girl Eats the Country. And that will be available to be streamed on a platform near you coming very soon. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I love being your local soup expert. An honor. I will say that my soup consumption has increased dramatically since finding your spot. And I love the premise of your company focusing on soups during colder weather and popsicles in the summer, boozy popsicles too. So what inspires you to make soup? Thank you. Well, Soul Provisions started as Toronto Soup Company um, in around 2018. It was a side business for me and a way to give back to the community. I started um, by working out of a commercial kitchen in Scarborough, making soup once a week. I had a website. It was a delivery-only business. And for every liter of soup that we sold, we gave one away to somebody who was in need. That was the premise of the business. And I started that because I wanted to teach my kids about empathy. My son, who was seven, said to me, Mom, what if we sold soup and made more money so that we could give away more soup. And, you know, bingo, there was the recipe for success. And soup has always been a huge part of my diet. I love soup. I'm happy to eat it as a meal any time of year. And soup was also a very traditional part of my um, upbringing. We would have like chicken soup on Fridays, but then on other days of the week, we would have other types of soup as well. And that's how that's how Toronto Soup Company began. I love that you started in a commercial kitchen, virtually or delivery only. And that you know, and congratulations for having a brick and mortar in my neighborhood. May I add that makes <laughs> me very very happy because it means I can come and get my soup fix whenever I want. So, Sarah, I guess the question I have for you is why soup? Like, I know you said soup is an important part of your your upbringing, but I know it's something we've touched a bit about on uh, previous episodes of this show is the seasonality that comes with people's diets and, and, and habits. Um, you know, drinking more red wine in the winter, for example, and, and cooking more stuff from the oven. But I, I mean, what made you focus in on, on soup for getting this initiative going? Well, for me, soup is love, first of all. And second of all, it's very sustainable because you can make soup with anything that you have in your fridge. So, even when you feel like you don't have too many ingredients, there's always a soup to be discovered there. So that, that's number one. Number two is that it's nutrient rich and you can pack everything that you need into a soup. And so when you think about buying soup to people who are hungry, it's an easy way to give people a complete meal. Most of the soups that we create, um, first of all, in sodium, very little oil, super healthy, we try to get a grain, um, a protein, and a vegetable into every soup. So it's just an easy way to provide people with a nourishing meal that's simple and can all be contained in one cup. And as far as seasonality goes, 
Um, you know, we live in, uh, you know, a, a, a country with very diverse uh, climate. And so our concept for the shop and when Toronto Supco turned into the storefront, which is now known as Soul Provisions, the concept was that we wanted to nourish people in all seasons. So we warm you up when you're cold with our soup and we cool you down when you're hot with our popsicles. That's so fabulous. And I appreciate that you focus on making soup a complete nutritious meal, not only for purveyors of your cuisine, but for a disadvantaged community. So that being said, you said soup can be a meal on its own. So you think it's something that doesn't need to be accompanied by anything. It doesn't necessarily need to be an appetizer. It doesn't always need to come with a sandwich because, you know, these days everything's always about like the soup and salad or the soup and sandwich combo. That's true. And this is definitely a controversial subject in the soup world. Um, (laughs) But I do, I mean, I believe that soup can be a lovely part of a meal, but I also believe it can get into itself. It just depends what your relationship is to food and soup. Some people don't see it as a meal, but I would like to challenge them to create a soup that could be a meal. You know, as long as you've got a protein, a grain and a vegetable in there, to me, that's a meal. Beautiful. I love it so much. And one of the things I love about your soup company too, is that you have soups of all different cultures from your kitchen as well. I know you are of Jewish descent and we, you know, I I love your matzo ball soup and you celebrate, you know, all the different Jewish holidays as they roll in every single time of year, but you provide soup to of all different backgrounds as well. I know you have some really beautiful Thai soups, um, you have some Western soups. Is managing such a diverse and large menu complicated or easy? Well, in Toronto, we do have access, right, to all sorts of ingredients. And um, if there's an ingredient that I'm looking for, I can usually find it at one of our culturally specific uh, supermarkets. So that's never really a problem. Um, We do try to be seasonal in our cooking. So you'll find our soups change throughout the year. And in terms of like cultural diversity in soup, um, you know, I tend to work with other chefs who uh, come from different backgrounds. I've learned a lot from them. Um, Currently in the kitchen, I also have Chef Jai, who makes our Jamaican patties and has taught me a lot about how to use certain seasonings um, in a way that's that's authentic. I try not to misname soups, you know, like saying something that's, uh, you know, Tom Yum when it's, uh, you know, a a take on Tom Yum, I try not to do that. So I don't necessarily call things like, you know, Thai or Jamaican, like I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll call it what it is based on the ingredients, because, you know, I don't want to step on the toes of other cultures without actually executing something properly. So there is cultural sensitivity in food, too. We definitely touched on that in the in the last segment referring to pronunciation of pho in particular, but uh, cultural sensitivity, I think, is definitely something we need to be mindful of yes. when exploring other people's cultures through cuisine, because mm-hmm. it's such a great way to, um, you know, a way to share people's cultures. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. I, I totally agree with you. And it's really fun for me to learn from chefs of diverse cultural background, because learning how to use an ingredient as it was intended um, in that particular culture is super fun. But I also think that there's room for playfulness in cooking and drawing on different cultural traditions um, and creating mashups is super fun. I love doing that. 
I love that. Sarah, I think nowadays, especially with what's happening with the economy, I know that the news stories are starting to come out, especially this time of year. And um, I mean, given what's happening with inflation, that more and more people are needing to access services due to food insecurity. Um, Could you tell us what your website is and where people can find you uh, so that you can help and and we can all together hopefully help make sure that some people can... um, can make sure that they keep food on their table for themselves and their families. Yes, absolutely. So for those who are in a position to um, buy soup from us, you can find us online at torontosoupco.com. Learn more about us over there. And then we have a physical location now in Toronto. Our storefront is called Soul Provisions. And we are located um, in Oakwood Village at 571 Vaughn Road. And for those who are looking for support, need a little lift, need a liter of soup and aren't in a position to buy one, you can reach out to us on social media, um, either on Facebook or on Instagram. And we are Soul Provisions, home of Toronto Soup Co. and other Soulful Delights. If you Google us, you'll find us um, pretty easily. And we still are available and here to help. The other way that people um, can help us is by becoming a soup ambassador, an empathy ambassador. You can come by and pick up soup and we, we are able to give you enough that if you would like to go and stock a community fridge, you can do that. Or if you know somebody that's in need, we're happy to give the soup to you and you can take it where it needs to go. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. And after the break, we're going to continue talking about all our favorite warm winter bevies that we can enjoy during the cold season. See you on 640 Toronto. You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together on 640 Toronto. I'm your host, Andre Peru, and I am always joined by my co-host, me, Maroki Tong, and now we're bringing on our drinks expert for each of our radio segments, uh, Danny Longo, who is the afternoon news anchor at 640 Toronto. Hey, Danny. Hey, and nice to talk to you guys again. Nice yeah. to talk to you, as always. I was taking a look at the forecast. I, I don't know if we're at the point where things are sort of unusually warm, but it's definitely been nice having a longer fall than I think summer. It feels like summer was too short, but fall is like getting longer. I'm wearing my winter coat. (laughs) It is getting longer, but you know, the Christmas markets have started, you know, all the, all the bazaars and all the, all the fun stuff. So I can't believe it. Wait, Danny, are are you, are you in your winter coat already too? Uh, no, not yet. Not yet. I I got a, I got a thick one and I got a light one. So I'm still wearing the light one. So, so my rule in, in the household is if it's double digits outside, it's shorts weather. And we've still had a few days where it's hit 10 and 11 degrees. And the moment that mercury hits double digits, Andre's in shorts. And I like to tell people my Saskatchewan's showing when that happens. Yeah. I think that's your prairie boy coming out. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm like, if it's more than fifteen, yeah, I'm. I'm in pants. <laughs> My legs get cold. That's hilarious. So, I thought what we would talk about this week, when it comes to um, to beverages, are the best boozy hot drinks. So good. Always my favorite time. I always love grabbing mulled wine at the Christmas markets. It's kind of one of my go-to things. I don't really make it at home, though. Oh, actually. I make it at home. I make it at home. 
Danny, how do you feel about the mold wine? Uh, I've had some that I enjoy and some that I really did not enjoy. Um, but how do you make it? I thought you just heated it up. Do you add things to it? Oh, yeah. You definitely add things to it. I, I learned this the hard way. <laughs> you you sweeten it a little bit. You could fortify it a little bit. But I mean, the big thing is adding like a whole bunch of, of fruits and spices. So like so the big ones spices. are are citrus. So like you'll add orange or grapefruit or lemon. Um, generally want to stick to the sweeter ones because you you want to sweeten up the the mold wine a little bit. But I mean, it's the same thing. Like we've talked about balance in wine, and I think it's just like balance in food or anything else. You don't want something to be too sweet. Other spices like cinnamon, cinnamon sticks, uh, anise, uh, cloves make a really good one. Um, I don't know. Did I miss anything, Maroki? I don't think so. I think you got the majority of it. And I know some people like sweetening it sometimes with sugar or fruit juice. Honey. I, honey. honey. Ooh, honey is a great one. Um, what I actually do too is um, I, I throw blueberries nice. into it. Nice. Yeah. Now, the one question I did have for you, Andre, because I've never really thought about this up probably on today. Um, do you use cheaper wine when it comes to making mulled wine or do you use good wine? Because, you know, the one of the saying goes is we back in the day when people used to cook with wine, everyone thought, oh, they would just use the wine that they opened, decide they didn't like or maybe wine has, you know, oxidized and gone bad. And they just use all their old wine for cooking. But, you know, the there's you know increasing conversations now that everyone should be using good wine to cook food because you're basically putting yes. those flavors into your food so you, you know, know you shouldn't be using wine you don't drink you know i i think like just to unpack that a little bit further it's one of my biggest pet peeves when you know i'll open up a bottle of wine at my house that was sent to me as a, a media sample or something and you know i'll taste it with other journalists or other bloggers or people from instagram and people will be like oh well the wine's not very good and she's like okay cool we all agree the wine's not very good well hang on i'll cook with it and it's just like Wine is something that imparts flavor. Like if you're making if you're making a red sauce, like a, a pasta sauce or a stew, you've just said that you don't enjoy the taste of the wine. Why would you want your food to taste like the thing you didn't enjoy drinking? Doesn't the taste change once the alcohol is rendered, though? I mean, to a certain extent, but like at, at the same time, like if there's if there's just something off about the wine, you're still going to get that in your food, right? But. I do make an exception for mold wine, just because you're blasting it with so many things on the other way around where the wine is adding flavor to what you cook with mold wine. You're adding so many spices, fruits and, and sweeteners and occasionally brandy or cognac or whatever else you want to add to it. You're doing the best you can to cover up whatever it was about the wine. You didn't necessarily like you can fix it. I'll, I'll make mold wine. I'll make mold wine with wine from a box. Okay. Maroki, what about oh, you? Yeah. I've definitely always gotten cheaper wine because if I have really nice wine, I have no intention of making a mulled wine. I'm just going to drink it by itself. So it just never made sense to me that I would be, you know, as you said, adding layers and layers and layers of flavor on something that was already delicious by itself. I'm yeah, pretty 100%. sure I used barefoot for my last mulled wine. Interesting. I'm on board with that. Yeah. I yeah. have never made my own, but I'm definitely going to try now. I will look that up, and uh, that's something to do this season for sure. I usually go... The only warm alcoholic drinks I like are probably, you know, like an Irish coffee or Kahlua or, you know. Oh, classic. Uh, I really like actually Wayne Gretzky has a fantastic uh, creamed whiskey or whatever. Um, and it was great. And uh, yeah, anything like that in a hot chocolate or in a coffee. Uh, oh, just 
that that does it for me for sure. I'm glad that they're coming out with dairy free options of those creams as well, like cream liqueurs for those oh, who are lactose intolerant. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Bailey's released. I can't remember if it was an almond milk version or a coconut milk version, some sort of alternative dairy, um, which makes it for, you know, those who are lactose intolerant with a dairy allergy have access to drinking kind of, you know, delicious hot coffees or kind of the, you know, alcohol, hot chocolates, bevies out there. I will say for things like whiskey and coffee, I do think good whiskey May add into good, add into coffee makes it taste so much better. Like the quality, you can taste the quality difference whether you're drinking really really great whiskey or cheap whiskey. I'm sure there's some Scotch aficionados listening to this segment right now that are just cringing at the thought of dumping like a leg of wool and sixteen into a coffee. I'm not even sure what peaty Scotch would taste like in coffee. I don't imagine that tasting too good. To be fair, yeah, I don't think I was putting peaty scotch into my coffee i think i was putting something more highland a little floral a little bit softer and i did cringe but it was the only thing i had and then the results were really delicious so i decided it was worth it i i know for me as we've mentioned before i'm not a coffee drinker and i'm a tea drinker sadly spiking the tea just uh it doesn't work quite the same it doesn't have the same impact i've yet to find the right boot i've tried to do like the Irish cream or the the Gretzky liqueur with like my Earl Grey tea, which is my favorite, and it's just I don't think I've made a tea strong enough to battle those uh, those strong flavors. Isn't there a beverage called blueberry tea or something? Like I don't think it's actually blueberry tea, but it's a hot tea alcoholic beverage. I'm googling that right now. Blueberry I, I, tea I cocktail. This I'm pretty sure I or- ordered it at a Moxie's once upon a time when is I was it? barely 19. Here we go: amaretto, orange liqueur, and four ounces of orange pico tea. Interesting. Ah, now you have a recipe to try. try. I mean, we had a couple other on the list just sort of to do the do the roundup of what makes the the best boozy hot drinks. I I I know that my heart still belongs to mold wine, but as we get into cold and flu season, I think uh, like Danny, as we've been hearing in the newscast, the province is definitely well into cold flu and um i guess just respiratory disease yeah respiratory disease season. Um, it's hard to hard to mess with just a good hot toddy. Yeah, and that's one, you know, I, I had never, I, that's not something I grew up with. Um, not that I'd be drinking alcohol as a youngster, <laughs> of course. Um, but and that's not something uh, my family really did. Um, I have had warm brandy, but it's interesting because there's so many different recipes for hot toddies. I was Googling it uh, earlier today, and it's just like, there's so many different variations on it. So you can try different things. Add some cinnamon, you know, mm-hmm. add some rum. Yes, and I think squeezing the lemon is probably the most, um, I guess, version you would do mm-hmm. if you were having it when you were ill. I guess it's your adult version of new citron. Maybe some I guess. Honey. Yeah. yeah, I drank a lot of hot port when I lived in Northern Ireland, actually, out of all things. Was it, it was good port? I, I couldn't tell you because I was, again, um, barely 19, and... It was something we, it was, it was served in the pubs. Like we would go hiking. I joined, I was part of a hill walking group and we'd hike. And after a day of hiking, you're all wet and cold and tired. It was just, you know, something that was very warming and you just sipped on it. I wasn't really a beer drinker yet at that time. And um, the next most affordable thing was drinking hot port and it was port. And then they would add a bit more sugar in it. And then they would just top it with hot water. And that's what you drank as a, as a fortifying beverage. 
Man, and as we get to the end of Tasting Together here, I think that was a solid roundup of hot, boozy drinks. But as we go down the rabbit hole, I think there's a lot that we missed. So if you've got a favorite recipe or a favorite cocktail that we didn't mention here, definitely text in to uh, 640 Toronto at 416-870-6400. Or you can always drop us a line on Instagram as well. Um, Andre at Andre Wine Review and myself at 9 ounces, please. The number 9 ounces, the full word, please. And yeah, we're always happy to have a conversation. So until next week, uh, 5 o'clock on 640 Toronto, this has been Tasting Together. Thanks to Danny Longo again for joining us. I don't know what we'll talk about next week. Maybe what Christmas wines you want to put on the table next year, turkey. Not something I'm looking forward to. It's okay, Andre. We've got you. <laughs>